0: And good evening to everyone. Good to see you on this warm and Santa Cruz day. Probably warm where you are too. One of the things that I enjoy most about Zoom Zendo is being able to see people with their pets. A cat's tail kind of goes across the screen. A dog, oh, there's one laying, a dog laying around in the background. Sweet. And this past Saturday, I recognized that um, some people were not able to tune in to the Zoom Zendo and I don't know why. I know I sat with Corrine and with Nigel and a couple other people were unable to get on, and I don't know why. So I apologize for whatever Zoom problem was happening. And I imagine that you sat Zazen anyway, knowing that some. <laughs> uh oh, true confessions. <laughs> knowing that somebody somewhere was sitting Zazen, maybe you sat anyway. <laughs> We recognize the value of sitting together, even if we're in remote places. You know, it's disappointing to not be able to tune in to Zoom Zazen when we're counting on seeing people, when we're counting on kind of the minimalist structure that that is to be able to tune in together. And I would assert that Zoom Zazen has been so successful because we have the memory of what it is actually like to actually sit together I think that we would probably not be as engaged with zoom Zendo if we didn't have somewhere in our memory a body memory of what it's like to sit together physically so for those who are able on the near horizon on a Wednesday evening in early September, we'll be trying to come back to the Zendo for one evening in September, Wednesday, and one Wednesday evening in October to test it out, see how we're doing. So please consider giving someone else the gift of your physical presence. (laughs) Um, There are a number of people who have started practice during these past two years of Zoom Zendo. And the the precious gift of your physical presence so that they have the point of reference of what it's like to sit physically together. Please consider offering someone this gift. And during this time, I have often thought of the Zoom Zendo in the context of Vimalakirti's room. You might remember a teaching and I'll talk to you about Vimalakirti tonight. But at some point, Vimalakirti allowed in 84,000 Buddhas and Bodhisattvas into a 10 by 10 room. So Zoom Zendo is kind of like that, able to accommodate an infinite amount of space and attendees. Slowly, we return to the actual zendo, we're remembering forms. Recently, we have added back in the offering of incense, now that we have an air purifier. So the offering of incense seems like such a small detail, but it actually um, requires participation of someone who is handing the incense to the whoever the priest is and someone who is preparing the charcoal on which we put chip incense so there's all this kind of um infrastructure that has to happen that goes along with offering incense it sounds simple to call it infrastructure in a way but that's what it is and it is actually all of it related to our ancestry in the same way that you have a family ancestry that lives in you, partly at the blood and bones level, you know, partly that's just the physicality of our heritage. But there's also cultural heritage that each one of us carries in a unique way, whatever combination of cultures our family of origin had. And that may include generational trauma or it may include, for example, at the physical level, uh, the diseases we happen to be resistant to because of our genetics, or whether we have a preference for bitter, or whether we have a preference for salty in in the flavor realm. All of this comes from our heritage. So, in that same way, In the Zendo forms, as we return to them, we're providing each other access to the heritage of our school. And I think of it as three things. One of them is cohesion. One of them is coherence. And one of them is continuity. Let me talk to you about each one of those words, because they're similar, but distinct. Cohesion, I would say, within any given zazen session or service. The cohesion of the immediate sangha, the way we bow together, the roles that we hold, and the way the roles all kind of dove, literally dovetail together to create the dance that we call service. You know, So that's cohesion. And coherence would be from any one session, of zazen to another or any one service to another, the practice details are the same. And very recently I was teaching someone uh, how Catherine taught me how to pass incense. Very detailed and her standard for this particular behavior was quite high. So. The experience of the practice details from session to session or from service to service are an example of coherence. And then the continuity is continuity over time, the way in which these um, forms of practice and the teachings themselves have had some consistency over time. And actually, if we look at Vimalakirti over the same amount of time that we've been studying the buddha's words vimalakirti was contemporary with the buddha so there's continuity over time but there are also um cultural permutations uh, but still continuity the permutations vary from india to china to japan and now to the west but there is a very consistent thread that has been carried forward over time so this these three cohesion coherence and continuity actually bring me to what are sometimes called the three pillars of zen and they're often named great faith great doubt great determination And I want I want to try to make those three words a little bit accessible to us. So there is some great faith in uh, the way we hold the forms of practice, for example. And faith is um, faith is an exceptionally large word. (laughs) So maybe I'll use the word trust for a moment. For for the present time, I'm going to trust that this person who's teaching me how to pass the incense actually knows what they're talking about. And I'm going to trust that that is true. And then I'm going to take the time to observe. Is this always true or does it vary with the circumstances? And it probably will vary. So there is a degree of trust. We could call that faith. That the container is reliable. <clears throat> then great doubt great doubt requires of us that we inquire not just passively receive the information that's coming at us but that we actually inquire Um, uh, deeply consider is this applicable to my life or not is what this person is saying true or not does it hold up in this circumstance and, and that circumstances or only in this limited view really to deeply inquire Uh, and not passively receive. The great determination, I actually feel physically as great devotion. It's not determination, the same kind of determination that I have when I'm engaged in an athletic endeavor, for example. It's not that kind of pushing, um, aspiring determination. It is actually deeply held devotion. Um, that is much more happening in a grounded way and in the heart realm for me. So great trust, great inquiry, and great devotion are for me right now parallel tracks to the three pillars. We have a model in our liturgy. Um, And I'm going to unabashedly offer you an appetizer for the fall study intensive (laughs) because you may like time to read some of the material before the class series begins. Nanette is going to zoom in from Santa Fe, New Mexico, in order to teach this series with me. And there are some readings to accomplish before the first class. So, the appetizer is really about Vimalakirti, and Vimalakirti's setup is vast and inconceivably complicated, Um, and I'll warn you in advance that that's true. (laughs) And there are many times in my life when I have put down Vimalakirti because I can't stand to deal with 84,000 beings in a 10 by 10 room. (laughs) It's just a little bit too grand. My preference is, I I picked up this book. Um, Do You have a little free library in your neighborhood? Yeah, there are little free um, pantries in this neighborhood and little free libraries in this neighborhood. And I picked up this book called Six Word Memoirs. And they really are an entire life story in six words. I'll give you a couple of examples. This is more my style, not the Kirti Grand, but six-word memoirs. So I'm good. Here's the title of this book, is a six-word memoir in and of itself. Not quite what I was planning. You don't have to bother to count them. There really are six words. Here's another one. <clears throat> I recognize red flags faster now. And a couple of these uh, six-word memoirs are actually quite tragic. One that's attributed to Hemingway. Somebody challenged him because he is very verbal. (laughs) Somebody challenged him to write a six-word memoir. Let me see if I can quote it for you. For sale. Baby shoes, never worn. That tells a story, doesn't it? And it tells a deep story. Makes me cry. Here's another one, a little lighthearted. I won't keep reading six-word memoirs to you, but this one is precious. (laughs) I wrote it all down somewhere. Six-word memoirs. In contrast with that, Vimalakirti, who is a lay practitioner, contemporary of the Buddha, and who our literature says had equal depth of understanding as the Buddha, and was a lay practitioner at the time, and welcomed people into his home, gave food, he was wealthy gave food to his entire community gave housing to his entire community and understood the buddha's teaching very well and uh he's characterized um how can i say characterized as both funny and wise so the vimalakirti sutra has jokes a lot of jokes in it if you can actually wade through the grandiosity, it's really funny. <laughs> so he, an actual person in contrast with many of the other characters we have read about over time that are kind of mythic or legendary, this was an actual person that lived at the time. And the story goes this way. Um, There was a time when he said he became unwell and wanted visitors and advised the Buddha that he would enjoy it if the Buddha's disciples would come and visit him. And each one declined the invitation. So, you know, think about that. These are people who are being trained to be kind. They're being trained to be generous. And they're not going to go visit this person. And then they start to say, why? Well, because when I was in conversation with Vimalakirti about the Dharma, he basically one-upped me with his understanding. And now I'm embarrassed to go back. And each one of them had... um, some kind of complaint like that that they didn't want to be embarrassed by vimalakirti again so finally vimalakirti asks the buddha would you please just send somebody i need to be able to talk to somebody and as it turns out the legendary figure manjushri who's known for cutting through delusion with the sword or with lion's teeth manjushri as a mythic figure is the one who was able to go to Vimalakirti's sick room and converse. And in their conversation, it's dialogue, Manjushri with Vimalakirti, and truly, truly funny, truly jokester, um, Vimalakirti offers advice to the lay community. I hope this sounds familiar to you. Mm Vimalakirti's advice, be generous, have kind speech, engage in beneficial action. Do these sound familiar? I hope they do. I taught you about them a few months ago. Dogen taught them as the four methods of guidance. Okay, so in these dialogues, Vimalakirti teaches the deepest Mahayana teachings. Let's see if I can pronounce it for you. The, the, the true title of the Vimalakirti book is Arya Vimalakirti Nirdeso Nama Mahayana Sutram. Let me pull that apart for you. Arya teacher. Vimalakirti is his name near Methods of Guidance. So the methods of guidance of teacher Vimalakirti and this great Mahayana Sutra. That's a pretty impressive title just in and of itself and goes through all of the core teachings that we would expect. Um, particularly, we would find um, the Bodhisattva Ideal. What is it to live in a, it, with the awakened heart? What is it to actually live in the world with the awakened heart? And uh, the earliest of the Koan teachings are in Vimalakirti for example this is some of the funny stuff well it's a or it's b oh actually it's both a and b oh well actually it's neither i nor b oh actually it's c and so the koan studies go through this with example after example after example and they're funny vimalakirti also brings in the emptiness teachings that are often translated now as the vastness teachings. And that is that every single thing includes every other thing. Uh, and uh, it's just a trick of our mind that we seem to be unable to grasp that that's true. Another crucial teaching of Vimalakirti is the use of skillful means. And we've we've heard this before. Uh, about kind speech for example Um, is it true is it helpful is it timely if you can answer yes to all three of those it's skillful so it might be true and it might be helpful but this is not the right time to say it well then it's not skillful so there's actually definition of skillful means in the vimalakirti sutra and not surprisingly, we hear that the Mahayana path, that is the the path of working for the benefit of all beings, is the superior path. This is probably why the disciples of Buddha felt a little bit put down, because they were busy working for themselves. And Vimalakirti is saying, Oh, actually, now put this back into Dogen's teaching in your mind. Mm-hmm. Not just beneficial action, but identity action. Myself as one of all beings. All beings equal to who I am and uh, identity with, full of everything else, vast, inclusive reality, no separation. <clears throat> so identity action is kind of the core of Mahayana Buddhism that we work simultaneously for the benefit of all beings. What's significant about this teaching is that it places in the mouth of this lay practitioner, Vimalakirti, the core teachings. And this person is addressing the lay community and the arhat community, the disciples of Buddha, And every single person is learning from him. So one would say, with all of this skillful means going on and all this wisdom, how is it that this person is sick? Why is he calling people to his sick room? And he says in a very important passage, because I am sick because the world is unbalanced. So it's not that he personally is sick. He's kind of sick on behalf of the unbalancedness of the world and engaging in this teaching in order to um, ameliorate the unbalancedness of the world. So in this context, uh, Vimalakirti teaches the uh, contrast between small compassion and great compassion. Small compassion we would recognize as beneficial action You know, if someone has fallen down, you help them up. If somebody has dropped their stuff, you help them pick it up. That's beneficial action. Uh, Working, for example, to clean the river this weekend is beneficial action. And it can also be identity action, equating with great compassion, because it's working for the benefit of all beings. One of the parallel books that we'll be reading in this study intensive is a book by Joan Sutherland. I'll hold up the title for you to see quickly. Vimalakirti and the Awakened Heart. And Joan Sutherland has this entire commentary. It is the most evocative of Catherine's teaching that I've ever read in anybody else. It is poetic, it is deep, it is ordinary, it is right to the point, um, and it, it is totally parallel chapter by chapter with the Vimalakirti Sutra. So she calls it a commentary on the sutra that Vimalakirti speaks. And there is a place in this one where she has talked about um, duality being a trick of the mind that this is something that the mind has simply conjured up as a way of being able to conduct ourselves in the world (laughs) she says dualism is a trick of the mind not a description of the way the world actually is and then here's her coaching for us paralleling vimalakirti she says If we can subvert the habits of mind that make dualities, we can take the next step, which is to begin to connect those things that have been separated by the trick of the mind. Mm -hmm. So she's giving us a direct coaching here on how to work with the tendency of the mind to create separation where there is none. Mm -hmm. There is a phrase that I would like to share with you, and then I'll stop going on. That is, um, we have heard the word enlightenment or the word awakening many times. And she actually, in this book, helps to understand a distinction between enlightenment and awakening. Enlightenment, as she describes it, I'll paraphrase. Um, it may be one moment of um, deep understanding. But awakening is an ongoing and lifelong process, and particularly done as a verb with an ING on the end, because it's a continual practice, awakening. And this is a very important thing. Sometimes people talk about the opposite of mm, enlightenment. Oh no, I should say it this way. A synonym, let's say it this way, a synonym of enlightenment would be disendarkenment. That's clever. And at the same time, Joan Sutherland pulls that rug right out from under us and says, actually, endarkenment is essential. And what she's talking about here is similar to the great faith, great doubt, uh, great determination. The great doubt is where we really drill down, where we really go under like into the compost and explore what is it that's feeding these roots of duality, for example, really drilling down into the conditions of our lives. So she says, in broad strokes, enlightenment is about the bright illumination that lifts us out of the suffering world and is the focus of classic uh, Buddhist literature. But endarkenment is about the radiance of the deeps that lets us find home in the world. Endarkenment is the heart that breaks open to life rests comfortably in the unfathomable mystery of existence and is easy with uncertainty, complexity, and what courses underground." So she's encouraging us toward this deep dive that she calls endarkenment. And she goes on. This is a pretty dramatic statement. Enlightenment and endarkament are both essential to awakening. We find parallels for this in modern psychology as well. You know, the modern philosophy as well, the depth, Uh, this inclusion of enlightenment and darkenment. This is what makes awakening whole, says Joan Sutherland. I have to warn us that um, we have this kind of aspiration, I guess I would call it, to live with the awakened heart, to live in the world. We seek nirvana. (laughs) Uh, And we have to be pretty careful about what we're asking for, actually. You know that the word nirvana literally means blown out, extinguished. In, in the way that a candle flame is blown out. It's done. So nirvana actually is the extinguishment of the ego. We want to live with the awakened heart. Let's be careful, because it's heartbreaking to walk around the world this way. Everything becomes heartbreaking, and yet great faith, great doubt, great determination at work constantly in this heartbreaking walk. This vastness, the emptiness, the enlightenment and darkenment together, the vastness expressing itself as you in your actual day-to-day activity. This upcoming study intensive will take a look at greater depth at Vimalakirti and at Joan Sutherland's teaching, their, their companion volumes. And they'll soon be posted on our website and you'll get them in the newsletter as downloadable PDFs. Or you can buy them as actual books. So, maybe we can move into announcements in a moment and then uh, I'll stick around for some conversation. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it.